I'm Roger Gregg, and I play the barman in a play called Good Night, Irene by Jennifer Johnston. My name is Jennifer Johnston. I'm a writer. I've been a writer for about 26 years. I play the barman, and Enda Oates plays The Stranger, the Irish novelist who comes into this bar in Oregon, in Eureka, Oregon, which is this little place that you drive through on your way to a place that you really want to go to. This was written after I had spent um, three weeks with three friends driving from San Francisco to Canada. And, uh, and the moment I got home, I sat down and I wrote this play. The phrase, two ships passing in the night, comes to mind immediately. It's about two men in a, in a rather lonely bar in a desolate, isolated place in the middle or on the edge of the northwestern edge of America. And an Irish guy goes into the bar and basically he confesses a lot about what's going on in his life to a barman who at first is just listening and then the barman kind of gets involved and starts opening up about his situation and his life and uh, we see that both men are kind of forlorn and are dealing with a kind of well the Irishman's case a kind of loneliness in the wake of the death of his wife and in the barman's case a kind of feeling of being trapped that he's his brothers have managed to get away from the small town and he's still there and he's looking after his father who's like an invalid and a very very not very nice guy anyway and his marriage is seems to be working but it's fraught they seem to be in dire financial straits because he has to work so many hours in the bar just to make ends meet you know so well it's about um a middle-aged writer whose wife has died and he is heartbroken and uh, he decides that he's going to go to America and try and sort of work all this sadness and sorrow out of himself just by driving and that's what he does. And then the barman eventually asks the Irishman for advice because well because he's a foreigner and he's going to be gone, so anything he says is kind of like, might as well be in a confessional, like there'll be no comeback on it. There's a little feeling that maybe this they'll have some sort of joyful meeting together. And they don't. And the barman starts talking about how his two brothers managed to get out of this little dead-end place when they were younger, and he stayed got the job in the bar and got married right away and had kids and so he was financially kind of stuck and meanwhile there's his father who is this rather nasty old redneck and eventually he becomes an invalid so this one son is left trying to support and keep this whole thing going and he's not getting you know it's not a welfare state there's no socialism so it's sink or swim and he's just trying to keep his head above water you know, he relays all this. There's no solution. What do you do? You know, what do you do? So many things in life are these kind of situations where you get confronted with stuff and it's just too big, you know. So the therapeutic value, perhaps, is just confined to being able to share that and get some sympathy, but there's no kind of solution. And there is a very old dancer who had fought in the war, and there's a very old lady who dances with them. And they don't really speak to each other at all. The other people are all just people who are dancing or 
there's odd singing, bursts of song come out of this poem. But there's nothing really positive. It's sort of fairly gloomy, but also quite funny. The stranger and his wife got married and they had all sorts of expectations for themselves. And none of these expectations ever came to anything. But he did love his wife and he was very, very upset when she died. Really, he's just trying to get rid of all the disgusting stuff that's inside his head. We all have disgusting stuff inside our heads, but uh, it's very difficult to get rid of it for everybody. I am a writer and that's how I try to um, get rid of what is inside my head. I've never been to Eureka, Oregon, I don't think. Um, the reason I say that is that my family did the big American, you know, the, more like National Lampoon's vacation, really, than the play. That's far more like National Lampoon's vacation than, than uh, the play. Uh, you know, I was 13 or something, and my family drove across America to visit my uncle in Washington State, which is way up in the northwestern corner, and we came from the Midwest, so it was the big drive across the states and seeing the little big horn and... Uh, uh, Hoover Dam and um, places like that, and then the Pacific Ocean and, and Montana on the way back. We stayed at a ranch, a dude ranch in the mountains, the Rocky Mountains and stuff. There were four of us, all elderly ladies, I may say, all elderly ladies who like enjoying themselves. It was thought about by a, a very great friend of mine called Lelia Doolan, who loves doing crazy things. And she rang me up one day and said, you know, we're going on this road trip. Do you want to come? And I said, yes, please. And uh, we all set off and we rented a car when we got to the United States. And we started driving north and we went up that big road that drives you all the way from, in, from America into Canada. And silly things happened and mad things happened and funny things happened. But what came out of me when I went back home again was instantly was that play. I wrote it very, very quickly and with great enthusiasm. Eureka, of course, which is a magic word, as we all know. They, they were very strange, those tones going up that white road. And we were entertained but we were also annoyed by the way they behaved sometimes. And then, of course, there was always the problem of putting your foot in it with Americans because basically we make awful jokes about politicians and things like that. And they don't like it very much if you make it about their politicians. You know, it upsets them. The Bushes, it was the Bushes, yeah. And, and that they're very funny people to make jokes about because they're quite funny people, you know, not meaning to be funny, but they were a bit funny. And all the lorries and everything all had great big labels written all over them saying, vote for Bush. I blame a group called the Firesign Theatre, F-R-I-E-S-I-G-N, like that's their zodiac signs. It was four guys in Los Angeles in the 1960s and one of these four guys got a radio program and he started just doing improvisational comedy. And gradually it became a group of four of them. 
and they called themselves the Firestein Theater, and they would just do this freeform, over-the-top, semi-improvised radio show. And it got to be quite popular among the hippie scenes. This was like 1965, 66 in Los Angeles. I started buying Firestein Theater records, and, you know, each record was like a surrealist radio play. How, how can I explain it? It was like using the knowledge of the best of radio theater, but with a hippie, college-educated mind. So it was a bit, if you ever met another Firestein Theater fan, you know, you know, hiya friends, Ralph Sports, Sport, Ralph Sports, Sport Motors in the world's largest dealer in new used and used cars here in the city of Emphysema. Let's just look at the extras on this fabulous car. Wild wheel spokes fenders, two-way sneeze, two wind vents, starts and mudge guards, sponge colded bolt-on steering column, and chrome fender dents, you know, and just like that's a, an ad from one of the albums, you know, it's a bit like uh, here the, the analogous thing immediately is Monty Python, that you'd meet someone and go, that parrot is not dead. He's pining for the fears. And then you'd have someone pipe in and go, oh, you know, the, and then suddenly you have these two guys, and usually they were guys, who would be doing whole Monty Python routines from the records. It was the same thing, but like six years earlier in the United States with the Firesound Theater. So that's a very circumlucious way to answer your question. But But... You know, while other kids were just buying every Beatles record and everything, I was buying every Firesign Theater record. And, I, you know, if you asked me when I was 16 or 17, what would you like to do if you could do anything in the whole world of, you know, I would say, I would just love to make comedy records like the Firesign Theater. Could I do that, please? That's what I'd love to do. Well, my father was a writer. And my mother was an actress. Um, and which meant that, that our house was full of books. And I was given books as presents. And I think I continued to give books to my children as they grew up too. The fact that my father was a writer is a good step off, you know, into the whole field. And, and, and also the fact that I loved making up things in my head. I, my, my eldest son wrote a very funny piece in the Irish Times when one of my books was written, saying I was just a liar. And he, it, was, it was quite affectionate, but it was just explaining to the reader that you didn't want to take everything for true. You just had to enjoy it. And I did radio, and I was fortunate enough back in the days when public high school in America was better funded than it's been since the Reagan years that we had a high school radio station and I got on that and got radio as a course that you could take and stuff. And when I came to Ireland first, I got onto pirate radio and immediately I was fascinated with the reel-to-reel, so I became the head of production. And then in, in my downtime, I would do like comedy sketches and this is the pirate days when radio really meant something. Uh, <laughs> and then I got into theater and started writing plays and I was able to keep a finger in the radio pie working for like graffiti theater company and, and doing a lot of the sound designs for their shows because I would still be allowed into the radio station and get access to the reel-to-reels because, as you know, before the digital revolution, it was like for Joe Bloggs and any street to have what they used to call broadcast quality. Like that was the only way to get it was to go into a big posh recording studio, you know. But the digital revolution came, and uh, and when that when that did happen, built my own studio, and so then I made a, a like a half hour comedy thing where I did all the voices and stuff, and um, put it out on CD, and then I got it to Tim Lehan, 
back in an earlier golden age of radio when he'd have like the Tim LeHan show and he got in touch and said, this is great. Can I, can I play it on my, ra- uh, my radio show? And I said, that's music to my ears. We should meet and become friends. So Irish Times said, this is really good. One of the best things on the air this year. And that gave me the green light and the door swung open here in RTE, which led to like 12 years of me doing a lot of great stuff. Most of my books have got curious stories in them, but they're all curious stories that could have happened. It's a sort of interesting thing. I really rather write plays and I can't. And I find this very complicated because I would like very much to write a good play. I don't mean for the radio. You know, that's that's a totally different thing. But I would like to write a, a really good play about Ireland. I've tried to write lots of plays without much success. A couple of them have, have done quite well, but I mean only a couple. And I sit at home sort of saying, the next thing I do is going to be a play. And uh, it isn't. Well, Crazy Dog Audio Theatre made a lot of shows in cooperation or for RTE over the years, over like a 12-year period. Some of them were entirely uh, studio productions and some were entirely live. Some were even broadcast live as they happened. And others were um, a mix of studio and location stuff. And I really enjoyed the location stuff. For example, we did a, a play of mine that, uh, that I wrote in response to the first Gulf War Infidel, Infidel was the name of the production, which was done by Graffiti Theatre Company, which toured around Ireland, and then a subsequent production of it went to New York uh, and played in New York University. And I was lucky enough to be in that production as well. And now uh, it's going to be produced at a university, um, uh, Messiah College, it's called in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, this autumn, or this October. So it's, it's still sadly, kind of very relevant to our world because it's about religious prejudice and the events of the Fifth Crusade, which is still reverberating to this day. Anyway, when we did the radio version, it was great because it was it's a historical drama, so we were very fortunate enough to go down to West Cork and record way out in a field in the middle of nowhere for our outdoor scenes. Now, we did have to stop a couple of times for chainsaws and stuff, which chainsaws were very rare in the year 1348. So um, but other than stopping for a guy that was chainsawing, you know, we had the outdoor stuff and we were on a horse farm and the farmer came, kept coming out. He was a mixed blessing because he brought out like eight horses and we said, we just want you to charge the horses around the field and we'll stand in the middle and we'll get the sound of the hooves on the turf as they run by and everything. And, and, but <laughs> we're taking take after take and the farmer kept saying, come on along there, come and tell me, and he kept talking. So, and he was just talking to us. Like he didn't understand that you could not record the horses without also recording his voice. It was tremendous fun. Two Moons is quite a nice book. Most people in most of my books die or are very close to death. I get great pleasure, not out of writing about people dying, but about the musing that goes on inside your head. How Many Miles to Babylon is quite a funny book, even though people go heavenwards. You like your books to be taken seriously, but then you want them, the, the, the humour in them to be seen also. And I think that a lot of people don't see the humour in my books, which is a pity. Um, Two Moons is good. Anybody thinking of reading a book, buy Two Moons.
The River of Ghost is a kind of autobiographical piece, or it's a piece about my family. I am old. Uh, one of my good friends said to me, we are yesterday's men. And I said, Patrick, you're probably right about that. I'm going to turn 60 this year. And my folks are very, very elderly at this stage. And I try to go back a couple times a year. And because I'm self-employed, I'm in that enviable position of being broke. But also, I have time. So, <laughs> so I go back for a month at a time to spend, with, pretty much to spend with my parents. And being where they are in life and packing things and squaring things away because they see with the writing on the wall and stuff, it uh, leads to going through a bunch of old photographs and old letters. One day we're sitting down looking at some cutting about the ch a church being opened in the in the town or a town nearby. And my mother says, oh, they didn't want that church put there. And I'm like, well, why not? And, oh, because it's Catholics. They didn't want the Catholics in that town. I'm like, what do you mean? What? Well, oh, your father or your grandfather shot a Klansman, you know, but they got the church in in the end, you know. I think it was set up, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Stop, Mom. Rewind, rewind. What did you just say? Oh, they put the church in there. No, no, the other bit about grandfather. Oh, he shot a Klansman. I'm like, what? He shot a Klansman. Yeah, they were trying to set up a church, and they threatened to, they came to burn down the barn. And I'm like, what? So she told, she told me this story, which I'd never heard. I guess on one level, it's talking about a family, just a simple family, just trying to get by and how everyone confronts big challenges in their life. You know, no, no one gets a smooth ride in this world. Well, I haven't written a, a, a book for quite a long time, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why. Either, you know, somebody in there is saying, you've done enough now, you've done enough, you've written 19 books, stop, because that is more than enough. I think probably within the next six months I will have written, I will have started anyway another book and be feeling happy. I don't necessarily feel very happy if I'm not writing. And I've been terribly lucky because things have come into my head and then they've been pushed out. I just, I'm waiting. <laughs>